a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy superstars, welcome along to episode 151 of the Howie Games featuring one of the coolest cats, the coolest cats in Australian sport. He is Usman Kawaja. Quick single. What a superb performance. Magnificent work from Usman Kawaja. 100 in the home of his birth. Usman is a beautiful man. That is the best way to describe him. He is a beautiful man. He's humble yet he's confident. He's caring, yet he's strong. He is really, really calm, yet he is really, really passionate. And as a parent, and I don't say this lightly, as a parent, Usman is the type of role model I would like my kids to follow because he just gets it. The lessons Usman has learned along the way give him a really unique perspective into sport and life. But the thing that I really love about Uzi, the thing that I really love about him is that he is grateful for what he has in life. You will hear him constantly in this episode refer to being grateful about certain things, which I think is really, really cool. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Now I've been talking with Uzi about coming on this show for about six months and since those initial discussions, he's made his way back into the test team. He has made runs left, right and centre. He's piled on the hundreds. And as he has reminded me, that as he has become, in his words, <laughs> people's champ. <laughs> he says it with a laugh, but he refers to himself as the people's champ. He says, Howie, it's going to be harder and harder to get me on the show because I'm an even bigger star now. But that's Uzi. He loves to have a joke. He's always smiling and laughing and having a bit of a chuckle about himself. Usman, though, does have a point in this area because you know you are big time when Paul Kelly is writing songs about you. And at the age of 35, when most thought he was through, he got some luck and got the call to himself stay true. Kawaja. Usman's journey hasn't been an easy one at all. He's been subjected to racism throughout his career. He's had his heart broken by selectors numerous times and for a while he actually lost his love of the game of cricket but he kept plugging away was he kept believing in himself and he kept working and that is why he is where he is today enjoy the story of usman kawaja in his words a boy born in pakistan who is living the australian dream so when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zionai Welcome to the Howie Games A man that has dominated Test Cricket recently And he tells me he's going to put this on his YouTube channel So I'm a bit disappointed I haven't done my hair But he looks sharp The great man Usman Kawaja is with us Mate, welcome to the show It's great to see you Welcome home, how are you going? Thanks, Howie Thanks for having me No, going great I've uh, gone back into life uh, Back home pretty nicely It's beautiful weather out here in Brizzy Um Family's going well, uh, Aisha's on fire, uh, so looking forward to everything that's coming up. We've got a baby coming up in a couple of weeks, so all hands on deck. Um, You've got another one coming. 
Yeah, another one coming. Oh, I didn't coming, know yeah. that, mate. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, yeah, Rachel. Well, you, you're gonna have like you might have you might you might have averaged 165.33 in Pakistan, <laughs> but now you're back at the real world. Aisha was just getting up; she wanted your yeah. attention. You were trying to connect your head. Are you back in the real world now, Usman? Uh yeah, I think I am. Uh, wife's bossing me around, so I think I am definitely <laughs> well and truly back in the real world. Do you know if you're having a boy or a girl or is that secret uh, squirrel stuff? Surprise. We don't, okay. we don't know. Man. We didn't find out the first time. It was a lot of fun uh, with Aisha. Everyone was trying to convince us it was a boy. I felt like a girl and then they convinced me too and then came out the girls. I was like, oh, wow. But they are. <laughs> uh, It was actually a lot of fun. I was like a bit shocked but it was a lot of fun. So hopefully the second time around will be fun too. How's it changed your life? How has it changed your life having a little girl and now another one on the way, mate? I've just lost a lot of free time, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> there's no coffee time. There's no focaccias after training with the boys. It's oh, uh, straight yeah, back into the, the grind. Those were the good times. Can, can you imagine what you used to do with all that free time that you never realised you had? I'm shocked how much free time I used to have and what I'd do with it and fluffed around with it. I wasted it. I'd, I'd be just watching TV, having lattes, actually a lot more golf, definitely a lot more golf. Um yeah, just it's amazing. You don't realise how much time you actually have until you have a child. And then you know, don't get me wrong, I love spending time with Aisha, but, you know, obviously helping Rach out as much as I can because I'm away a fair bit, um, especially right now while she's um, heavily pregnant. Um, but, yeah, it's amazing uh, how much free time you actually do have before you have a child. But uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love it. How's the pool when you're away? When we're recording this, you're just back from a – well, uh, nearly a month in Pakistan and at your daughter's age. I went away for six weeks to India when my daughter was three months old and when I came back, she looked completely different and it broke my heart a little bit, to be honest, Was he at that young age, they changed so quickly. How, how's the draw of home when you're away? I used to change a lot. She grew up, definitely grew a little bit taller. Facial features changed a little bit. She was definitely saying more words. Um, I think we're lucky this day and age we got FaceTime. Um, and I can actually see her growth slightly through the lens, obviously, of what we're mm. seeing right now. But, I mean, it's not like, you know, back in the heyday where you just had a phone or, you know, whatever, you couldn't really see their faces. So I can still kind of be involved in, in her growth and she doesn't really give me much of the phone. Like, you know, she gives her <laughs> classic 10 <laughs> seconds like, hi, Dada, hi, Dada. And she'll be like, look, blah, 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 blah. And then she's off. And I'm like, yep, I got my 10 seconds. Thank you. So it's it's not the same, but, look, I'm... Yeah, it's, it's, I'm very grateful. Like, obviously, um, you know, she's a handful. She's a toddler. Rachel's back here. Rachel's amazing. Um, she she never complains about it. She does her thing. She's, you know, she's. I, I've only seen my mom and her, and I'm really blessed to have two beautiful women um, who are great with kids. Um, you know, right without Rachel, I think uh, life would be very tough, and uh, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So I'm very grateful uh, for Rachel. You know, everything she does, and obviously, um, yeah. So a lot more coming with another one happening. I love it, Uzi, and I love your use of the word grateful, which we'll get to. I just met your beautiful little daughter, Aisha. Um, she popped up next to you. You uh, <laughs> put her on uh, on the, the Zoom, grumpy. and yeah. I made her cry immediately. So I felt it bad. I like the little ones, and I made her cry immediately, <laughs> she's Uzi. Of, she's a good test of character. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mentioned YouTube. This fascinates me. How are people going to see this? Because we're normally a, a uh, audio operation, but you, you did message me and say, can I put on YouTube? What, what's the Usman Kawaja YouTube channel all about? Um, well, to be honest, it's a bit, about a bit of fun. It's about me yep. just being able to discuss stuff without having headlines per se about me or worried about how it's going to come out when I speak or say something. You know, I 
I'm the owner, I'm the creator, um, I'm the god of that YouTube channel. I can do whatever I want with it. Um, so whatever I put up is, is my my opinion and I can edit it how I want. I, I really like the control and to be able to actually just speak my mind because a lot of the times when you're doing media or you're doing other sorts of stuff, you're always, you know, you're trying to be as, yourself as much as possible but there's always that little bit where you're just like, you know, you got to be careful of what you're saying. You don't want to say yep. the wrong things. Um, got to be, you know, all that sort of stuff but... My YouTube channel, I haven't put a lot of stuff up lately, but when I do, it's it's, it's pure Uzi. So it's just about me just communicating with um, anyone out there, fans and the beauty of YouTube is anyone can click on it. Um, and that's what I, I just love doing that. And you know, I have a lot of thoughts that come in my head when it's cricket related or whatnot. Um, and sometimes I think I feel like, oh, yeah, that's worth sharing. And sometimes I think it's not. So the worth sharing ones, I, I'll normally try to put it on um, a video and do that kind of way. I did the podcast stuff like you did too. I just found, you know, I've got the, I've got a face, I've got a face for TV, so I might as well just put it out there. <laughs> as people will begin to realise, Usman is a very humble man, but deep down, he's not shy on humble. confidence. You're right, I'm very humble. Yeah, humble. You got it right. You got it yeah, on your shirt. Gorinda Sandu, his new clothing outlet. Is it humble? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Representing, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's H-M-B-L-E if people want to check yeah, that out. Yeah, yeah. Now, I should say to you, um, this is an area I want to want to talk to you about that I know nothing about. Um, at this point, I should have said to you at the start, Ramadan Mubarak, yes? Thank you, yeah. Um, Ramadan Mubarak, I've, I've had COVID last six days. I haven't really told anyone. <laughs> You're all right? Out the I'm fine now. I'm out of it. Yeah, I just waited till I got through my seven days and I, I didn't really get too sick. Um, you know, everything's going all right. So uh, I miss the first couple of days uh, of Ramadan. But look, yeah, it, it's one of those times of the year which it's funny. It, you tell people, um, you know, you don't eat or drink, you know, the whole day. Yeah. And they're like, oh, how bad is that? But it's actually you do your whole life, you actually really enjoy it. It's something that I've always loved doing. And every time I miss one, it, it kind of annoys me a little bit um, just because I enjoy it, whatever everything it stands for and, and what it is and, what does it's it actually, stand for, Uzi? To ex- explain it to me. So for people that don't know, from uh, sun up to sundown, in your faith, nothing passes your lips, yeah? Yeah, so um, on a really basic terms, yep. it's no food, no drink, no water, anything, uh, sunrise. It's probably about an hour before sunrise actually okay. till sunset. Yeah, it's, it's been being technical. It's about an hour before sunrise um, to sunset. Um, yeah, nothing passes. It's, it's, it's more than just the food though. It's obviously, um, it teaches you discipline, gratitude, which we talk about, you know, we've talked about a bit before, teaches you, you know, how lucky we are to, to have food and, you know, water on our tables all the time. Um, I think that's a big, that's definitely a big part of, um, fasting, being grateful for what you have. Uh, but there's more to it. You know, there's other things, you know, you, you've got to be really careful when you fast because it's at the time where you're trying to, um, cleanse the body. It's a time of purity. So, you know, swearing, you can't just walk around swearing, things like, um, you know, small, like, you know, the other sins in terms of like backbiting, um, you know, keeping your gaze down. You, you, you see like, you know, not me anymore because I'm a happily married man and, you know, I love my wife, but uh, you, you're walking around and you see uh, women and whatnot, you keep your gaze down, you try to do all the things that are right, right. in terms of basic Islam is not just about the food and drink. It's it encapsulates encum- uh, I can't, I can't even speak right now. It, it encapsulates a lot yep. other different 
aspects of purity. Um, but obviously right at the heart of it is the food and drink because, yeah, look, if you don't drink or eat for a while, you start to feel it. Um, it really tests your willpower out, um, tests your discipline out, um, and it all strives. It all comes from there. So a couple, there's a couple of obvious questions off that. I remember speaking to uh, Basha Hooley about this, and we'll get to the athletic preparation when when you're trying to perform at your sport. Before we get to go that, he, I haven't got the exact words, was he? But he talked about a lightness. The, the, that's the way he felt. How does it make? you feel physically, spiritually, emotionally when when you're doing it and when you're sacrificing? It's a pretty deep question for a start of a podcast. Yeah, it is. Uh, I like it though. It's I guess it's very different for everyone. Yeah. Um, and that's the beauty of, I guess, religion and Islam in particular. Um, it's always your own personal journey with God. It's got nothing else to do with anyone else. Um, you know, even to become a Muslim, you don't need, to see an imam, which is our equivalent of a of a priest or whatnot, you all you have to do is believe in uh, Muhammad and the prophets before him, and believe that there's one God, and if you believe that wholeheartedly, and you believe in the Quran, you can become Muslim right there and then. That's all you have to say. So it's always been a journey of individualism, just with you and God. Um, so I guess with that, it's very different for everyone. And for me, um, it's just about that whole, you know gratitude piece of yeah, how lucky we are in Australia and how lucky we are. I, I was growing up, not even in Australia, how lucky I was in Pakistan, like all the things that we do have in life that we so surely take for granted. Um, I can't imagine what it's like not knowing where food's coming on the table or not having the opportunity to drink clean water. Um, I guess when you come down to the crux of it, um, that's, that's a big thing for me um, and it makes me feel you know, I guess doing it because I, I believe in it so wholeheartedly, I get a sense of uh, not only you get a sense of achievement because it's not easy to do, but it's also you get a sense of um, purity and sort of rebalance and cleanliness and in a way sort of coming back to square zero sort of brings you back down to earth every year, once a year, every year. So mm -hmm. I really enjoy that. And is there a period in the day that um – sacrifice aside um, for two Aussie blokes where you're like, it gets to five o'clock in the oven and you're like, geez, I'm hungry or does it not enter your mind? No, no, it enters your mind, trust me. Does it? I was in England doing Ramadan when I was playing for Lancashire in Manchester a few yeah. years ago, maybe six years ago, and Michael Nessa was over there playing league cricket um, for a team and it was about an, an hour or so away. He came over anyways. If anyone doesn't know, it's summertime in Manchester, <laughs> the sun goes down at like 10, 15, <laughs> 10, 15 oh, so p.m. You, you've so you got to wait even longer. 10, 15 p.m., oh, yeah, yeah. So I hadn't thought of that. The way the, way the, the, way the Islamic calendar works, it's still the same, it's still the same amount of months and whatnot, but it runs on the lunar cycle. So it goes yep. back um, 10 days every year, approximately 8 to 10 days every year. So when I was young in Australia, it was during our summertime. And now it's sort of during our winter coming back into autumn time now. But six years ago, it was right in the heart of the summertime in England. So the sun was going down at 10, 15 p.m. <laughs> and rising again around 3 or 2.45 a.m., oh. something ridiculous. It was, yeah, it was, it was literally you had from 10, 15 to 2 a.m. to drink as much as you could and to eat and to do whatever you need to. So Ness came over and we had dinner. We went out to this uh 
uh, restaurant and was sitting down there at 10 p.m. ready to eat. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> it was one of those Brazilian restaurants where they bring you meat and they bring oh, you... Oh, the churrascaria with the, <laughs> with the red or the green. Yeah. So they're bringing it around and that's just looking at me. I'm like, mate, just start eating. I'm, I'll, I have to wait 15 minutes. He's like, okay, thanks, man. I'm so hungry. It's 10 p.m. I'm like, I know how you feel. <laughs> so, I mean, look, it, it's, it's amazing how... I, 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 I still look back on it and I can't believe I was fasting till. 10 p.m. at night. I go to sleep at 9.30 every night yeah. now. So, yeah. And the athletic side of it, was obviously, especially in the last, you know, we've known for a long time we need to hydrate, but I think athletes have known it for a, a lot longer than the normal punter, but I think it's become yeah. a lot more relevant in my world in the last five, six, seven years due to my beautiful wife. She's like, if you want to perform in anything, you've got to be hydrated. So you would have had times when you've been batting, probably for extended periods of time, because as you've explained, it goes throughout the calendar year depending when it's falling. How do you go out there knowing that you haven't physically prepared your body in modern sports speak to perform at its best? I know faster in cricket. You just um, don't, right. I just don't. Yeah, I, I used to when I was younger. Um, yep. Scored 120 when I was – this is when I was in our summertime. I think I was in – 15, 16 years old and I fainted, I was cooked, I right. just fell down. I, after that, I was just like, no, nah, yeah. not doing it again when I'm playing cricket, it's just not worth it. Um, you have to make it up later on, but there's plenty of cricketers. I, I don't really know of too many cricketers who do it while they're playing, especially test matches. Even when I talked to Hashim Amla, he didn't do it during test matches. It's just too hard. It's impossible. The game goes for too long. It's not like you play for two hours and no. can just, you know, get over it after that. So um, and, and so does that? conversely weigh on you at all that you're not being able to do what you feel you should or, as you said, you just actually said to me you make it up somehow. How's that work? Yeah, well, you can actually just make up the days later on. Okay. Everyone would have different sort of, um, you know, feelings towards how you would do it, yep. what you need to do to do it. Um, there's no black and white ruling on if you miss uh, what you have to do. But I guess at the end of the day, as I said, it is your relationship with God. So, um, it does suck. To be honest, the older I'm getting, um, the more my body, I feel like I need to be on top of it. So there are times where, um, you know, it sucks to miss um, Ramana, but I know as from a sporting point of view, I can't play cricket forever. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where I just have to do for a little period of time. And then, you know, when, when it does finish, I mean, we're quite lucky right now that there's no cricket on. For me, so I don't have to really worry about it. But you know, even during that time, I remember in Manchester when I did it. I think I did maybe around. I think it was twenty days, and I missed ten during that Ramadan cycle because we had games uh -huh. on during that ten day period, um, and the rest was training and stuff. So um, got it done. Um, I remember playing a tour game against Hashim Amla. It was just a tour game. It was I was playing with Darvishir and he was playing for South Africa, and um, we did it um, just because it was a tour game. It was just a you know, friendly game, did it. Um, and I remember asking them, like, do you do, you do it during test matches? He's like, no. And even the Pakistani team, I'm pretty sure they don't do it um, during <laughs> test matches. Because it does. It actually has – you don't drink water. It has a massive effect on your performance. You are just not performing at 100%. It's not possible. Um, so it is a personal choice. But for a game that goes for six and a half hours in a day, um, longer, seven if you count, seven and a bit if you count all the breaks and whatnot, Yeah. Um, good luck. Yeah. Hey, mate, you mentioned your, your beautiful wife and how grateful you are to have her in your life, Rachel. 
Can you tell me where you first met? Because I really enjoy a love story, Uzi. And then <laughs> um, doing a bit of reading, uh, she took on your faith. I'd love to know if it's not too personal, what that involves and how that conversation goes. Um, no, look, I, I met Rach through mutual friends. Uh, she was friend. Funnily enough, Rachel's um, Rachel's sister dated Jack Wildebeth, who's a oh, player. The big Wildebeest, yeah, as I like Wildebeest. to call him in the Big Bash. Wildebeest, yeah, I've heard you say that. Yeah, yeah. So they <laughs> they dated each other. Hello. They dated oh, each other. Like, she's a menace. Oh, she's a menace. hello, beautiful. Here's what happens oh. when I met Rach. When, when yeah. I meet Rachel, yeah. Hello. Wow. She's go, she is going to be the star of this YouTube channel. Don't worry about that. You reckon you're good looking. Have a look at the little one there, Rosie. <laughs> yeah, so we literally met through a mutual, um, one of my mutual friends, Josh Daskin, who's also a cricketer um, at Valleys now, is the chief financial officer at uh, Cricket America, funnily enough. Um, wow. Hey, don't be like that. Give me a sec. Rach, can you please? <laughs> Speaking of Rach. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then. Yeah, Daskin introduced us, and to be honest, that's that's pretty much the gist of the story. It wasn't too much else to that. I, well, I wasn't... it was your dashing looks that you've already described for us earlier. Well, on, she no she doubt. added me on Instagram the next day, and I thought that was a sign, so <laughs> 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 I slid into her DMs, and then the rest is history, as they say. Um, what was the second part of your question? Uh, just about the fact that. Uh, so oh, is yeah, it okay. sorry, now? Excuse. Uh, I often say this to my guests, excuse the ignorant questions, Uzi, but I'll just ask them because I think this show show is about explaining and teaching to people and that's why I've been really excited to have you on. For you to marry Rach, a non-Muslim, is that a viable situation or does a partner of someone that follows your faith have to take your faith on board for you to be able to get married? Sorry about the ignorance of that question. Yeah, no, no, I like the question. My first off, I'll start off by saying I would never tell anyone how to practice Islam, like first and foremost. So Right. You know, if a, if a Muslim wants to marry whoever they want to marry, I would not judge him in any sort of way. Like no, any sort of way. So that's it's very it's very important that I do say that because um, everyone would practice Islam slightly differently. Everyone would have their own interpretations of things and whatnot. So um, I'm very open to the idea of never judge anyone and just you know you do the way what you think is how you would live life. So for me, um, you know, the way I read into the Quran, Islam, for me it was viable to marry a Muslim, Christian or a Jew. Okay. Um, just because they're all Abrahamic religions, all stemming down from, um, yeah, all the way from Abraham, um, yep. coming down all the way to, um, you know, Moses and then Jesus and then Muhammad. So it wasn't a be it and all that, hey, Rachel, you need to convert for me to marry you. Um, she knew that. I told her that. But she also realised how important Islam was to me. It's, you know, you talk about life. Before I met Rachel, it always went Islam, cricket, family, like, you know, family sort of in Islam. So I can't really say family. So it was all like, you know, Islam and cricket. I just like to distinguish those two because people normally think it would be cricket, Islam or whatever. Right. It's, Islam was right up the top, always has been, most important thing in my life. So... I guess she knew that. So I, very early on I just asked her if she was open to the idea of learning about Islam and she already had. I think her mum had already spoke to her about it because she knew that I was Muslim and she said, look, you know, you're you're dating someone who's, you know, Muslim and 
Um, you probably might want to learn about it, uh, whatnot, blah, blah, blah. So I think her mom gave her the first Islamic book possibly. Um, <laughs> so th- even the fact that she'd done that already was a yes. sign to me that she cares. Um, and then after that, it was just about me teaching. I was traveling a fair bit at the time with the Australian T20 teams one day. Uh, I was playing all formats. So I remember I was sending her emails, teaching her stuff and sending her links and writing emails about, you know, what this meant and all that sort of stuff and, um, she was slowly learning, 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 and you know, eventually got to the point where um, you know she was ready to convert um, to Islam. And even then, I remember asking her a million times, you know, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And probably to the point where she got angry at me, and it's like, <laughs> yes, I'm bloody sure. Like, so <laughs> the 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 beauty of it is that you know, when she came out from a Christian background and Christianity and Islam share so many um, similarities. Um, you know, they're, they're almost as I already said, they're, they're a lineage of each other. So, and the fact is I, I always wanted her to convert on her own. I, for me, it was really important. And I and I said to her, I said, look, you need to convert. If I die, will you still be will you still be a Muslim? Because you need to ask yourself that. If the answer is yes, then you're doing it for the right reasons. If the answer is no, then you're not. So hmm. um, that was really important for me, for her to know that, you know, it wasn't the only way you know, I would have married her either way. I was in love with her. I was going to marry her. Um, but I guess when she did convert and, you know, and all that sort of stuff happened, it was, um, yeah, look, it was really special for me, but I think it was really special for her too because just seeing her now, the way she is and, and how she lives her life and, you know, she, she she's very Muslim. She uses all the Islamic terms and whatnot, even just in her natural daily speech and, and she's really invested in it. It's really nice to see from you know, someone who grew up in, you know, a Christian sort of background. And uh, I guess for me, being a family with Aisha, um, it's just that much more special. It sounds like you're very lucky to have each other, mate. Um, uh, the last time I saw you was um, the Sydney test because then I got COVID and had to call the Hobart test from home. So I didn't get to see you. But I think I think you knew how excited I was about the fact that you were getting to go back to Pakistan and um, I was pretty gutted I couldn't go because I really, really, really wanted to go, as I told you a couple of times, yeah. um, but I couldn't due to footy commitments, which was disappointing. So we'll get to Pakistan and the way you played and the way you were received, mate, and congratulations to you and Pat and the entire team. It was it was riveting viewing here. I watched far too much cricket over those 15-day period. But, mate, tell me about your, your family, um, their background, and I know you left Pakistan as a young fella, but what, if any, memories do you have of your homeland? Uh, the memories are short, sharp. I spent a bit of time in Islamabad before I left. Remember our old house, um, bits and pieces, uh, backyard, playing cricket there. We actually went back. We left in 1990. We went back in 1992, 93. My dad needed to sort some stuff out of Pakistan and we spent a month there. And I just played cricket the whole time when I was there that month. And apparently my, from all reports, my dad and my brother say that's when I really started showing some um, progress in the sport. <laughs> apparently when I left, I was decent. And then when I came back, my brother said I was just, I was at another level when I came back. So, I mean, anyone tells you practice, you know, it doesn't help is, is an idiot because I think I just all I did for a month, <laughs> I just played cricket nonstop from morning um, all the way at night. We had floodlights out and up, but we had a decent backyard to play cricket. So all the kids around from the neighbourhood, I made friends with all of them, we'd come out and play. So that's one memory I definitely have from Pakistan. But uh, other than that, we visited a few times here and there. Um, all my family's from Karachi. 
I was born in Islamabad because my dad moved for work. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much the gist of it, really. There's not much more to it other than that. I'm, you know, I'm so, so just like it. Your family, mate, I, you know, when you speak to people like um, Mark Bosnich, who was the last episode, mm-hmm. or, or various people that have uh, migrated to Australia and their parents have done it, often without much money behind them, often without knowing where they were going, often without the language behind them, I always think, as you would now, you imagine if you took your family now to a non-English speaking country where you didn't have much financial backing, say you moved them to Rwanda, right? Like It's the other side of the world, you know nothing about it. What was that experience and decision-making process for your folks? Do you know what, what the decision was and why they came here? And, uh, yeah, and- yeah, my dad, my dad loved Australia. He came in 1979 for an IBM work trip, absolutely loved it. Right. Um, that's that 79, 89, a whole 11 years later we ended up moving and it was it was just pure luck. He was driving, there was a billboard at the front, like a big billboard near an embassy somewhere saying uh, visas to Australia are now open. And my dad saw it. I was like, oh, I wonder what this is. So he literally just drived in and got the paperwork and then, wow. you know, filled it out. This happened over the space of I think he told me about eight months. He just filled the paper, then they sent stuff back, then he sent back, sent stuff back, qualifications, blah, blah, blah. And then he finally, yeah, they said, look, yeah, you're eligible. You have all the qualifications and stuff. You're eligible to get a um, visa to come to Australia um, as a permanent resident and to work there. And so, yeah, my dad even then was like, well, I, I wasn't expecting to get this far. I mean, I love Australia, but I just did it because I thought, you know, let's see how far we get. And then yeah. told my mum about it. My mum was not happy. She does not know <laughs> to leave. She does not want to leave Pakistan. We had a pretty it's good pretty, life. It's pretty Pakistan. late in the conversation to bring it up over dinner, mm, by the way. I've it? applied yeah, yeah. for us to move to Australia. We have a pretty good life in Pakistan <laughs> too. You're right. We had, my mum had like help around there. She had three kids she was looking after. And then my mum, I think... <laughs> I think my dad sort of just said, look, we're going to go for six months or something along those lines and oh, yeah. see if we like it. We don't. Um, my dad had intentions to be there a lot longer than six months, I reckon. <laughs> so my mum was like, okay, well, if it's just six months, let's just go. So that's how he got my mum over the line. Um, and huh. then, yeah, the rest the rest was history. Did, what, what's, what's your, uh, you know, I'm taking you back, what's your first memory of Australia? How old are you, five, six? No, I'm four. And, I'm four. So. Okay. We stayed in this crappy little back then too. So I think it was Maroubra. Maroubra is not what you see Maroubra now. So it's um, very hard, different. Hard work. Yeah, yeah, different place Maroubra back then. Even places like Surrey Hills, like we weren't allowed to go anywhere near Surrey Hills without our parents because it was just such a rough place to go. Surrey Hills, Redfern, um, so dangerous. So we just stayed away from it. Uh, but we stayed in this, um, it was literally a studio apartment with, two beds, um, the five of us shared a communal TV in the middle of the the, the floor. Uh, so, like, you run out, you know, wake up in the morning, I run outside and see the see the TV and call Debs and run, get the TV and press it on because once you sat down and you watched something, no one could kick you off. Um, there's times, yeah, this other fellow would sit down and be watching the TV and I'm like, ah, sucker, the guy's there again. And I just wait, just wait for him to leave. Um those were my real early memories of that was that that was the first place we stayed at. Did you speak English at all, Izzy, or not? No, nothing. No, no. So None. You wow. learn English in school in Pakistan. Like I had just hadn't been through school, so my brothers spoke fluently. They 
they were fluent in English. They went to um, an American school in Islamabad, so they were so sweet. So had you picked it up by the time you started school or not? No. So kindergarten, oh, I had no idea. Apparently teacher asked me a question and I looked at my mom and in Urdu I said, which means like what she's saying. And I still remember the face of my teacher. She was just like, ho, ho, ho. This, she's like smiling on the outside. But inside <laughs> she's like, oh, boy. Um <laughs> I, I still remember her name was Miss Weekends and she was a legend. She and then I, apparently I, I got um, you know I got fluent in English quite quickly. It's amazing how quickly you pick up things because apparently in two months I was fluent in English. Um, you know I, I don't know how I made friends to be honest at the start. I, I well I do. It was sport, so I just played sport with everyone at lunchtime. Yeah. They're always playing a handball or footy or cricket, and I'd just be playing with them constantly because I love sport. Um, but I picked it up all pretty quickly. I don't even remember. It's a distant memory now, so it couldn't have been too bad. Back to Uzi in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, former St Kilda superstar in the world of AFL, Nick Revolt. It's a really cool episode, this one. Pretty free-flowing, a bit more organic than usual. It includes book reviews, travel recommendations in both Tasmania and Texas, how to win MasterChef, the grieving process, and how Nick's brutal brutal analysis of his own performances drove him to try and improve every single day. This blew me away. Bear with me. This is Nick Revolt's book, Revolt, The Things That Make Us. It's not just about losing, it's measuring so much of your self-worth by how you do things and feeling inadequate when you haven't done something as well as you know you could have. I've had games where we've won and I've played okay, but I might have shanked a shot at goal or made some other basic mistake. This is the bit that really got to me and I thought, how'd you do this for 17 years? That night, I wouldn't be able to sleep. It made me feel dirty. It's just, it's a, dirty is an interesting adjective there. It made me feel dirty and I'd want to keep talking about it until someone said, don't worry about it, you still played well. I'd search for something to help me cleanse. The whole week, I'd just feel dirty. That is an extraordinary paragraph. <laughs> What's it like to hear that back now that you're out of the game? The whole week I just feel dirty. Um, Heaven's above me. Yeah, yeah. Th- those that know me well that were close to me through my career would agree. Right. Like they, they would see it. Uh, and at times that made, me, that made me hard to be around. So what do I think now when I hear it? I think oh, I can feel it. I, still, I can still feel that feeling or emotion, but... I'm so glad that I'm not there anymore. Dirty. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's, a, it's a strange adjective. Yeah. That, that's how I felt. That's how I felt. And so I, that's why I was so wound up all the time, in, in, particularly in the lead up to games, it was because I felt like every time I took the field, didn't, and this was true for my last game, Every time I went on the field, it was an opportunity to either enhance my reputation or diminish my reputation, hmm. which is silly. Like it's nonsensical because if you've done something for 15 years really well, well, then one game's not going to really change the way people think about you. But in my mind, that's, that's where I went. Even if you have zero interest in AFL, Nick's story is one that is well and truly worth listening to. That's next week. Nick Revolt on the pod. All right, let's get back to Uzi. Before we get to cricket, we, we've touched on some pretty big topics already here, Uzi, which is why um, I was really looking forward to talking to a, a young man from the other side of the world, different country, different religion, different language, different colour. Did you experience difficulty? You know, we I had 
Michael Holding on this show talking about Black Lives Matter a year and a half ago, and it, it broke my heart. In in uh, you know the footy club I support at the moment, there's a story about my favourite footballer Surioli and what he went through when he was playing football, and that also broke my heart. As a young man, do you have any connection to situations like that, or it was never part of your life, mate? Absolutely, tons of it. I mean, I still have it. I was walking into. Um, Hotel we were staying at in Melbourne at the MCG. We were sorry, in Melbourne we were playing this year in the MCG. I didn't play, but obviously there with the team and obviously uh, we were in strict bubbles then. So um, England and Australian teams were separated from the rest the uh, the public in the hotel. And um, I had one of the one of the guys at the front stop me three four times in the space of a day. Like, didn't stop anyone. I had my whole Australian kid on. Didn't stop anyone. Stopped me four times in the space of a day asking me if I'm part of the Australian cricket team. I was pretty good the first three times. Was the fourth time? Yeah, right. Yeah, the fourth time got me. And even like, you know, Rach saw me a bit grumpy, which she doesn't really see very often. But um, it just goes to show you that whether or not, whether you think you live in a perfect world, and, and it's not, it's not a perfect world. And, um, you know, there's still, I guess, in some terms, I'm still different. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not white. I don't, you know, what you think of the Australian cricket team is, is not Usman Khawaja right now, unfortunately. Um, hopefully that'll change in the next, you know, few years and a lot of stuff we're trying to do behind the scenes with Cricket Australia and whatnot. But, you know, it's, I just wanted to, I guess I, I haven't really told anyone that story, but other than a couple of guys in my team, but, just wanted to point out that this is 2022 and this stuff kind of keeps happening. It still happens and it's, it doesn't really bother me. As I said, the first three times it didn't bother me. It's the fourth time that annoyed me and I don't know why. And I don't know why it kept happening. Maybe poor guy had a really bad memory. So um, I let it go. Um, at the end of the day, you know, that kind of stuff's been happening my whole life, little bits and pieces like that um, and some bigger ones. But I mean, that's just... Um, it is what it is. Unfortunately, it's um, you know institutional. It's, it's been going on for a long time. Um, you know, me coming into Australia, I, I always stuck out. I was an immigrant um, of Pakistani descent, um, and so I guess uh, where Aisha is the mix of both Rachel and me. For for me, it was yeah. When I moved out to Western Sydney, I remember that was the real telling one because I felt like the Eastern suburbs were a bit more tolerant at the time, especially in the early 90s. I guess I got a real taste for it when we moved out. I mean, yeah, I could go on and talk about this for a long time and I could talk about a lot of specifics just to make it really basic and just say, look, yeah, it's still, still prevalent. We're still trying to deal with it, still trying to become better. Um, we've come a long way over the last 10, 15, 20 years, especially since I've been in Australia, but there's still a bit of work to do. Yeah, I, I, again, um, I don't know. I don't think either of us have the answers to it. I, I'm not sure what I can add to that except to say specifics aren't what we need, but as a highly educated, highly intelligent, highly loved 35-year-old Australian, you have a certain way of dealing with it and you're a very calm, peaceful man. But as an eight or nine-year-old, how, how is that? Uh, I've got to be honest, when you're eight or nine years old, I mean, bullying and all that stuff is it's kind of a part of school life in a way. 
Um, well, it was when I was young. Like, shouldn't um, be that was. It shouldn't be. Yeah, I guess it's kids. It's very hard. Kids don't really have a filter though. How we like, you know. Like, you, no, true. I, I, I kind of understand it. Kids don't have a filter. They're still learning the filter. So there was a lot of stuff. Like I'm not saying I, I got bullied. If, if anything, a lot of things in life, I, I was the bullier in a lot of respects when I was growing up. Um, but then I, I learned to give as, as good as I got, but I had to because if I didn't, then I would have been, you know, the minority. I was the minority. I would have been absolutely trampled or, or, or trampled all over. So yeah. I guess... Um, you know, as a nine, ten-year-old, it was a bit hard. I was a little bit embarrassed about being Pakistani, being called curry muncher. I hated it. Um, I didn't like being Indian. People used to make fun, like you know, funny Indian accents. You know, it's not, you know, it's not the nicest thing in the world. But at the same time, I also think it it made me stronger. Um, it's just a learning experience in life. Um, kids are going to be kids. I, I I actually don't really have a massive issue. With kids, I do have a big issue with adults because they're they're in control of their emotions, they're in control of their thoughts, they're in control of their actions, they're responsible for their actions, they're adults, they're legally responsible, whatever it might be, they have no excuse, right? So for me, the older I got and the more I heard it from people who were at, at an age where they were adults, th- those were the ones that really um, I thought was, was wrong. And kids say stuff, you got to take it with a grain of salt. All you can do is try to teach him, um, try to make them learn to be better. But when I was getting, you know, as a kid, I'd hear some of the things that adults were saying about me because I was dominating cricket at the time and mm. I guess they didn't like a coloured person dominating in their competition. You know, I wasn't you know, what they expected um, to see coming out of it and and I'd hear a lot of stuff and I'd, and they, they wouldn't be, be shy. They'd say it because they knew I'd hear it. They still say it though and that's the kind of stuff that was wrong and, um, stuff I like to think that we've got a lot better at, but I'm sure it's still out there and exists. Actually, yeah. sorry, I know it's out there and exists. Which is another reason, you know, I've been <laughs> I've been pushing you for two years to get into the Fox Sports um, commentary box, which um, I think you'd be fantastic at, and I, and I hope that's what happens, and I hope that's something you decide to do after your career. But um, it's become wonderful in my field of work in the last five to ten years to see so many different types of faces and flavours um, and backgrounds and sexes in the commentary box. It would be cool to see you in there, Uzi. Like You'd be fantastic at it, but then it gives a wider range of people in the Australian community to look at that and identify with you or me or Isha or Mel Jones or I, I was going to say Warney there but obviously not Warney anymore. Um a chance to link to have that dream as well. That oh, was he's doing that in commentary? Maybe I could do that. I think you've hit the nail on the head, but I think even more so, Howie. I love to see the exact same thing in the Australian cricket teams. Like Ireland female. I think you know for a long time we've seen just predominantly white faces in the team, and you know even to an extent, it's great to see um, you know people of you know. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island backgrounds coming to someone like Scotty Bowen, everyone got around him because it's so great to see. It's so rare. Um, yeah. It's just great to see. So I like to also, you know, when I say we've seen a lot of white faces, I like to distinguish that too because Scotty Bowen's as Aboriginal as anyone. He's very yes. proud of his heritage. But also at the same time, I like to see people 
I like to see the Australian team be represented by what we see outside every day when we're going out and you know, going to these beautiful restaurants we have in Sydney, Melbourne, Queensland, Perth, all these different multicultural um, restaurants and people you're seeing, a different colour, race, religion, mixing all the time. Um, and then I look at the Australian cricket team for a long period of time and I just think that's not a correct representation of where we are. Uh, I look at the coaches, the Australian, not just Australian coaches, but coaching across and I think that's not a correct representation of where we are. I look at the Australian cricket board for a very long time. It's slowly starting to change now, but for a very long time before that, and I thought that's not a correct representation of where we are now. And so I guess we need to look at all the way from the top because the decisions are made from the top and filter down to the bottom, right? A long time we've been doing, oh, no, we're doing all this great stuff in the community and whatnot, but the people who are making the decisions really don't understand what the community want or need because they haven't really experienced it. They don't have people of the same culture, same heritage, mm-hmm. same colour. They don't know what's going on. So it's very hard to understand that. So that's a big thing that I'm trying to work out with Cricket Australia, trying to get better, trying to change. So I love the fact that the commentary, like, you're right, it's awesome. It's great to see it. And I want, but I want to see that in the Australian cricket team too. And I feel like we should have seen it by now, but we haven't. So um, the more I've played for the Australian cricket team, you know, I used to hate, and I still don't p- particularly like when people say, you know, he's the first Muslim to play for Australia because I really don't understand what my religion's got to do with anything because it's a very personal thing for me. I do, and I actually prefer people say I was the first Pakistani-born cricketer to play for Australia because um, I think that has a bit more relevance. I, I really feel like, you know, being of colour, being slightly different, having that background behind me, I... Uh, the amount of people who've come up to me and gone, Uzi, I never supported Australia before, but now you're playing for Australia, I support them, particularly of, you know, subcontinental background or even uh, multicultural background. And the fact is I was very much the same. I didn't start supporting Australia till I was about 13. I just could not relate to Australia. And the only person that got me over the line was Gilly. He was one of my favourite players. Adam Gilchrist and Brian Lara are my two favourite players. So the fact that I could relate to Gilly because I thought, no, nah, this is the guy, this is one guy I look at and I feel like, you know, he's not that classic, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, sip on VBs and, you know, do all that. I just didn't relate to that. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm not judging anyone at all. But, like, I couldn't relate to that, but I could relate to Gilly and he got me across the line. And after Gilly, you know, I'm a diehard fan for Australia. I love Gilly. I love what I, I did miss an innings of his and I was diehard Australian fan. So I kind of get why for a long time you have the, you not realise how many subcontinental Australians who've lived here for one, two, three generations don't support Australia. They still support, um, you know, their their old um, country teams. And I'm not saying I've got no issue with that either, but the amount of people that do that, it's just skewed too much. And you always feel like, like there's something not right. Like they've lived here their whole life, they're born here, and they still don't want to support one of the best cricket teams in the world. There's something off about that. So uh, and I know from my personal experience is that to be able to relate to players that you're watching to feel like you're a part of their journey and for a long time in Australian cricket, I don't feel like, um, you know, the uh, minorities have been able to do that. It's a great answer, mate. Jeez, 40-odd minutes in, we've, we've hit a couple of pretty meaty topics. Let's just, Let's talk cricket. For a bit, what's the first cricket team that uh, Usman Kawaja rolled out for? It was a proper game of cricket with a scorebook and two teams that were left. <laughs> I was playing for Randwick 
uh, Remick Greens, they might have been called back in the day. Um, I'm pretty sure we played against Coastal, who Davey Warner was playing for at the time. Um, nice. So we obviously, uh, people know that now, we grew up playing together with the exact same age. We played for the same rep team together. We used to open the bowling in bat three and four. Now, people um, won't realise this. They're going to think, Usman Khawaja opened the bowling and I remember having this discussion yeah. with you. But for those, <laughs> what, what, did, what did you send down? I sent down right arm heat, as they call it. <laughs> <laughs> right arm heat. Uh, I was leading wicket take. So there's a competition in Sydney grade competition. There's the grade competition underneath that under-16s competition called the Green Shield. Yep. Um, and I was the leading wicket taker for... I'm uh, pretty sure I was leading wicket taker for my second last year, my my last year. It might have been my last year in the competition. I got, I won the all rounder of the year award. So I did bowl a little bit back then. I did bowl my little pace, as we like to call it, right arm heat. Um, I bowled a bit of first grade too when we got in. I I, I bowled. I remember I think I pierced Chalo out in uh, an under 19s <laughs> game and old leg spinner from India. So there was a time I used to bowl a lot of meters and then it slowly just withered away and disappeared and then turned to offies. So First hundred? Yeah. First hundred in organised cricket? Um, it was a bit later. I think I was 10 years old because back then when we started playing, when I was, so we started playing when I was six or seven, you only got four overs to bat. Yes. So as much as you could, whatever. Then when you got down to tens, you could bat for as long as you want. It was 35 overs, 30 overs each, and you could bat the whole 30 overs if you could. And I remember I got my first hundred. <clears throat> it was 30 or 40 overs. First 100 then. I got 160 not out. In um, how many overs? I think it was like 40. Jeez, you've gone on. You're yeah, a yeah. dasher, Rosie. Funnily, funnily enough, I got nicked off for like, I got nicked off for a duck. Yeah. I didn't hit it. I missed it. No DRS time. I was devastated. Shoulder slump, walking back. The keeper told who was the coach, who was the umpire, oh. gave me out, said he didn't hit it. And coach the keeper? Like, yeah, he missed it. Yeah. And the, so he called me back. And I scored my first hundred after getting called back. Yeah, wow. something I'll never forget. Yeah, it's quite. Yeah, it's uh, that they talk about spirit of the game. That's that's spirit of the game stuff right there. What was like a six, seven, eight, nine year old? I can only imagine what a young David Warner was like. What what was he like around the track? <laughs> <laughs> he would have been Absol- an ample, wouldn't he? Absolute absolute menace. Think of whatever you, whatever you see now and times it by seventy. <laughs> Honestly, some of the stuff he was just nonstop. It's like. <laughs> Manus on steroids, really. He's, yeah. <laughs> it was it was a sight to see. My mum still, my mum loves Davy. She's known him from that obviously young age, and she still sees that young Davy because his face hasn't really changed. He looks the same, um, and he's only grown like four inches since then, anyway. So. <laughs> I hope he's not listening to this. Will he? he won't like that. <laughs> uh, like my mum, my mum absolutely adores Davy, and every time I. Talk to da- about Davy, or she sees Davy pop up. The, her face always brightens up. So uh, he was a naughty kid, but uh, my mum, my mum always, you know, she always loved him. He was a lot of, he was a lot of good value. Mate, frequent listeners to this show know that I have a couple of kids. Um, that uh, the one who is most enthused by the athlete asks a question to the guests. So you get my ten-year-old son, Uzi. His name is Mac, but. He rolls as the Big Penguin. That's his nickname, self-appointed when he was about four. Um, He knows your game inside out. He stayed up far too often late watching uh, Australia versus Pakistan recently when uh, he's like, he's a bit like, he's got two two general rules. If Finchie's batting or if you're batting, 
he's allowed to stay up. So <laughs> he, he was I cooked. Like it. He was I cooked like it. during yeah, the apologies. Pakistan series because <laughs> you were out there the whole bloody time, was he? I was cooked too, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go, was he? Hey, Uzi, Big Penguin here. First off, I thought you were outstanding in the Pakistan <laughs> test. You were so good, and Dad and I were shattered when you got out for 97. But we thought it was amazing when you got all those hundreds. Anyway, my first bat was a kookaburra blaze, and then I got a kookaburra shadow, and I was in the nets and that snapped, so I had to get another bat, and I got a kookaburra rapid, Pro 6. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Why did you change to DSC from Kookaburra and what was your first bat? So he wants to know why you changed and what your very first bat was. I love the first bat stories. That's great, yeah, the first bat. I was just talking to Mitch Marsh about my first bat while we were in Pakistan. My first bat was a Grand Eagles Dino Drive and it it was a Jeff Marsh edition. Oh, uh, and I was oh, telling you, yeah, yeah, old yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I showed him a picture. I still got a picture on my phone. So I showed him. He loved it. He was like, how good is that? I was like, yeah. It was funny because my dad gave me the bat. He's like, it's a new bat. There's this Catch Me a Willow thing. I was like, oh, how good. I was so excited. And I looked at him I'm like, who's Jeff Marsh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my dad's like, he's a very good cricketer. He plays for Australia. He opens the batting. I'm like, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. I was like, I had no idea Jeff Marsh was at that time. Uh, funnily enough, you never believe it. I was I'd be playing with his sons um, twenty years later. Um, that was my first bat, uh, and then DSC, yeah, Kookaburra DSC. Look, I, what can I say? DSC, amazing bats. Um, I do love their gear, um, the bats in particular. I've I've played with a lot of bat companies in the past, and I, you know I've I've been very fortunate. I've I've had a lot of good bat companies in the past, and DSC is just another one, one of them, but. The amount of good bats I get percentage every single time. I don't know what they're doing over there in India, but uh, whatever. Maybe they just give me the best stuff because it's pretty good. But yeah, so pretty much, I love the DSC bats. Um, you know, if I if I'm being honest, it's uh, yeah, at that point in my career now where you know I, I've become a bit of a bat snuff. I never used to be, but now I actually am. I think it might have been Manus who's who's got into my head a little bit, but he's he's the next level. He is. He is so screwed with his bats. He's, in he's, what way? In he's, what way? He's, he's trying to change this. He's trying to do that. He's like, what about this? I, I hear him on the phone to his bat makers more than anyone in my entire career, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I look at him like, oh, I'm very grateful. Thank you, DSC. I always get, you know, I'm very happy with myself. Maybe I think it's just more, I think it's more the person. It's more him than anything else. I just, I'm a very simple man. I, uh, I like good ping. Um, I like a nice shaped bat. I'm done. I'll let the penguin know. He'll, he'll be pumped with that. Um, so as you're getting a bit older, um, I always ask this question. There's not many questions I always ask, but were you um, a Ricky Ponting that was always destined to play for Australia or were you a Justin Langer that had to work your guts out to proceed up through the junior ranks? Uh, if you ask my dad, I was the Ricky Ponting. Um, <laughs> I love your dad. I love your dad already. <laughs> uh, the amount of times I'll be sitting down, it's like, this is my son. He's going to play for Australia. I was like seven years old at the time. I'm like, no dad, pressure, what, son. what are you doing? He's like, he's this, he's this, he does that, he's done this. I'm like, just come on, man. But, uh, yeah, so if you ask him, Ricky Ponting, um, if you – but I know for a fact I wasn't. I was the Justin Langer. Um, even if you – I guess if you ask people that I played with growing up, you know, I was I scored well, I did all the thing right, but I was never, you know, I wasn't the golden child. I wasn't 
I wasn't touted for massive, amazing things. And people were like, yeah, he's going to be the next big thing in Australian cricket where there were a lot of other people um, in my age group who were sort of touted for that kind of stuff. And um, I had to work my ass off. I, I had to score 10, 11 first grade hundreds before I even got a sniff to play for New South Wales. Um, and then even after that, I, I'm not sure if there's anyone that's been dropped more in Australian cricket than I have even after that. Um, I felt like I've had to work for every single step of the way. Um, and even if you talk, I talked to my coach, old coach, Matthew Mott, um, when he was coaching New South Wales at the time, you know, I asked Mott, I said, do you think I could play for, do you think I play for Australian? And I asked him a while back and he was like, look, I, I thought you were really good, but you never know if you ever go play for Australia. So like, to me, I guess I've had to work for every single inch that I've gotten. Um, even more so, and we talked about it earlier, I felt like there was times in my career, especially growing up, that I'd be uh, left out of teams and neglected. Um, at the time, I just I didn't really get it. Looking back on it, I realised that it was because I was slightly different. I looked different, and at some respect, it, it, it without people realising subconscious bias or even bias. Um, you know, consciously that, you, you know, people want to pick certain players that they understand, they relate to, that they can see and then look mm-hmm. like. And they, it's just natural. It's a very human thing to do. So I get that. But I've had to fight for every single inch I've gotten. Um, I haven't been given anything. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, that actually made me more resilient, better cricketer. I'm actually grateful for that journey rather than if I did get selected in certain teams, you know, I was playing first grade cricket at the age of 16. Um, I was averaging 40 odd. It was only me and I think Moses at the time who were playing first grade cricket, maybe David Warner too actually, um, in New South Wales and I didn't get picked for the under 17 New South Wales team, um, which I, like, at the time I just, I just looking at that I was like, I'm the only one performing in first grade right now. I'm averaging over 40 in first grade at the age of 16. Um, I was top run scorer in the first grade final that year too, um, and I still couldn't get picked in the Australian. Uh, sorry, in New South Wales on the seventeens team. So, um, you know, I look at that. I don't. I don't say that to to give a sob story, but that was a major turning point, I guess, in my in my cricketing journey because I was just that much more hungrier to perform and to show everyone the next year and the year after that and the year after that. So the fact that I haven't gotten a lot of things easier easy throughout my career, I actually think have made me um, a better cricketer in a lot of respects. That's the end of Usman Khawaja Part A. See you for the second dig on Part B.